0: Hi, my name is Irfan Vafai.
1: And I'm Molly Keck. And I'm Wizzy Brown.
0: And we are with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension to the Department of Entomology. And this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape.
1: Thank you for joining us. This week, we are talking about preparing. Caring our spring vegetable garden. I, I don't know about you guys, but I have been kind of itching. I've gone to the garden center a couple times, and I see all the plants, and I I can't resist buying stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Especially since all the current stuff is dead.
1: <laughs> Not in my local Not all garden of it.
0: center. <laughs> no, no, no. I meant like in my in the landscape. I mean, like all of my my garden bed stuff from that winter storm is looking um. Yeah, a little bland.
1: So then when you go to the garden center, it's like, oh, everything's green and I need some more stuff. Uh I came home with some tomatoes and some different herbs. Then I got home and I went out and I looked in my garden bed area and I was like, I need to do that first. So I kind (laughs) of put the cart before the horse on my my part. (laughs) Hopefully we're catching everyone before they do what I did. Currently I have my plants waiting to be planted we're going to talk about some of the stuff that we're going to actually need to do to prepare whatever they're doing. So Molly, Irfan, do you guys garden or have vegetable gardens? I do. Things in your regular landscape?
2: I don't put it in the landscape. I have a separate garden and I wouldn't say I'm very good at it. I mainly plant things to like get bugs to put in my collection a lot of times. Nice. True entomologist right there. That's right. I plant. <laughs> I usually plant a fall and a spring and then spring will last or spring slash summer. Right. And then it dies off usually in June because we go on vacation and I forget to set the timer and then I have to give up on it.
0: Nice. We have a, uh, we have a garden bed that we just built in our front yard last year and we have a magnolia tree. Uh, we had some giant salvias. We have a fig tree in one side of it too. And then some of the areas in which we're kind of Um, open or available, we just kind of stuck in, I think we had some banana peppers last year, just like three banana pepper plants gave us way more banana peppers than we really cared for. (laughs) And we just do like some herbs, like we've got some, uh, some mint um, that, you know, is very easy to grow. I wouldn't call myself a gardener per se, nor do we, you know, really produce a lot of fruits and vegetables out of our yard.
1: You're dabbling.
0: I'm I'm dabbling. I'm just getting there. You know, I'm new to the whole, you know, having a home landscape to work in kind of thing. So
2: even if you don't have a home landscape, you can always do container gardening. Those are always successful. That's very. I kind of have a mix. Like my herb garden is really a container garden, and then my veggies are in the bed.
0: Yeah, yeah. Our mint is like in a large pot.
1: Do y'all have a raised garden bed, or do you have? actually like in the ground or again, a mixed, cause I, I have stuff in containers. I have raised garden veggie beds that are dedicated for certain things. And then I also have a bunch of stuff that's just in the landscape interspersed.
2: I haven't dabbled in just sticking it in the landscape, but I probably should. Cause there's some really pretty fall things that, you know, make some really nice color. Mine is a raised bed and it's, it's three separate raised beds. I'm sure we're going to talk about it, but that's, I do that for a reason. So I can move like my cucurbits over here and my tomatoes over here and mix it up instead of planting the same type of plant in the same spot all the time where the bugs like to find it. So why do you do that, Molly? So I confuse the insects because I always say foot for them to travel is like a mile for us. So if they're not in the soil and they're, they didn't fall off the plant and then they got to find their way to that plant in the next growing season. So I like to move them around.
1: Yep. Crop rotation is a great thing. I try to do crop rotation, but I am not the best at it, I must say. (laughs) Unfortunately, I think with first and foremost, if you're first planning a vegetable garden, so Irfan, something to keep in mind, Mm -hmm. check your location. So when you're planning this, you're going to need at least eight hours of sunlight. A lot of people try to grow stuff in shaded areas and it doesn't work as much.
0: Is that like direct, direct sunlight?
1: Yeah, I, it's it's better to have morning sun on it if you're going to plant it in an area that gets shade. Because of course, when we get into July and August, we have the Death Star upon us. Yeah. And <laughs> you know that afternoon sun can really, really be harsh on not only us, but our plants. We want to make sure that it's getting enough sunlight. Because a lot of times, if you don't have enough sunlight on your fruits and vegetables, they're not going to set fruit.
2: Or flower even. Yeah. Mm.
1: Of course, you, know, you want to make sure that drainage is a problem or, or I guess not a problem. <laughs> you don't want drainage to be a problem. So if you plant stuff in a low-lying area... That's where another raised bed idea might be a good plan where you actually kind of build up that bed. And depending on where you are in Texas, doing a raised bed is going to probably be a good idea anyway. I mean, I'm in central Texas and we have approximately two inches of soil before limestone. And so (laughs) raised bed gardening is about the only thing that I can really do to get anything to grow. That makes the The next thing that you really need to do easy if you're going to do a raised bed, because you really need to make sure that you're building up your soil, that it has the requirements that it needs. So that could be fertilizer of some sort, whether that's compost or manure. Do you compost your chicken manure, Molly?
2: I don't really, except when it's time to clean out their, their coop that one of my chickens enclosures is on a, on a concrete slab. So I throw mulch in there. So they're not just right flat on the concrete when they've pooped on it a lot and it's getting kind of gross and it's broken down or it's been rained on, then I will scoop that up and I'll put it in a wheelbarrow. I don't put it in my vegetable garden because it just worries me a little bit. Although I know you can, but I'll put it on my other plants. Use that kind of as a really good fertile mulch
1: to put around them in the springtime. And are fun you compost, don't you? Yeah,
0: I got like one of those little tumbling composters. I'm an again an amateur. I don't know if that's the way to go, but yeah, I got one of those composting bins where you can we just throw our fruit scraps in there and spin it every once in a while so it of rotates it. And then whenever we're ready to plant stuff in our garden, we'll just dump a bunch of it out on a tarp and drag it to the flower bed and put a little scoop into every little hole in which we're going to transplant into.
1: Compost is one of those things that a lot of people are concerned about the insects that are in there, Hmm. that they're transferring those insects Hmm. into wherever they're putting it. That's not really a concern. I mean, do you guys think that they need to be concerned about anything that would be moving over from the compost? In my opinion, they're eating completely different stuff.
2: That's exactly what I always tell people is they're eating decaying organic matter. So if you're worried about them eating your plants or they are, ask yourself, why is that plant decaying? And let's figure that out and not worry about the bugs.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of what I see that works really well in that compost bin is a lot of different fly larvae. And again, yeah, they're basically decomposers. So unless you're plant in your garden bed is starting to decompose, which means you already have another problem and the insect is a secondary problem. I don't foresee that that transferring of insects being an issue. And I think that's where it really helps to make sure that the compost, I guess, is actually broken down to a point where it is all decomposing organic matter. Whereas if you, you know, using your compost within a week and you have some plants in there that still have some live infestations of white flies on fresh leaves or something like that, then you might be transferring that around. If it's actually decomposing organic matter, you know, I don't think that's an issue, at least not to my knowledge.
1: I'm kind of of that. It's decaying. They're not going to be eating it. In my garden bed, when I went out there, I didn't do anything last fall. I just let everything die. It was a train wreck, honestly. I had to pull up all of the old plants and get all of that gunk out of there. And then I had to make sure that I was getting rid of all of the weeds. The way that I do that personally is I I just took the garden hoe and started hoeing the area and kind of breaking up the soil and getting up all of that vegetation that was in there and pulling that out. Do you guys till your gardens? A lot of people will do layering and just kind of pile more stuff on top and then plant on that. I guess either way could work. With tilling, you would be turning over the soil and killing whatever might be in there. But with the layering, essentially what they're trying to do there is get enough of a layer that it's going to block any sunlight that reaches to block things from germinating maybe
2: sort of control, help to control weeds.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if the layering would necessarily kill any overwintering insects.
2: I wouldn't think so. I always tell people, maybe not necessarily till, but at least take your rake or your hoe and just turn the soil over the top layer of that soil over a little bit. I mean, it loosens things up so it's easier to plant, but also it exposes whatever eggs and pupa or whoever's been overwintering. And then they're more susceptible to drying out by the sun. And so you start with a smaller population. So we always recommend I say we I'm talking about me and our, our horticulturist, Bear County Extension Office. But we always say when you put your garden to bed, whatever season that is, then prep it also like you, you pull everything out and, and prep it and then prep it again, right before you plant your plants. And that way you really expose all those bad guys that were hanging out just waiting for more tomatoes to be planted.
0: When I'm weeding, I usually just try and take out those specific weeds. And whenever I'm planting, I like to just loose up the soil right where I'm planting, you know, just a little hole. And I guess that's kind of come from this assumption I've had. I don't know if it's true or not, that by tilling, you might be making more of a better opportunity for those, any like weed seeds or any weed propagated material in there to start growing again. So I'm not sure from that standpoint, how much weight that holds, whether actually tilling all of it would encourage weeds to grow, or if you need to go in then with a pre-emergent herbicide or something like that to suppress them.
2: I don't know. That sounds like a very good graduate project. <laughs> <Yeah>. it,
1: <counts. laughs> it sounds very reasonable. Or it could be a demonstration <laughs> trial we could do this spring or go. next fall. <laughs> with me kind of turning things over and turning the soil over that makes it easier for me because I always add compost or something to it. And it kind of helps me incorporate that into the soil more so than just layering stuff on top. I guess I could just put the compost on top, but I've never tried that. And I'm going to build a new garden bed. So maybe I can do a comparison and see what happens.
2: I also feel like if you aren't mixing it up, then you get this compacted soil and the water will just run off. It won't necessarily expand and get to all the roots. I don't know that there's any science behind that, but that's the way I feel when I try to water really hard, hard, compacted soil.
1: Obviously, plants are going to need sunlight. They need nutrients and they need water for growing. When watering the plants, having the soil a certain way is going to really play into that. I know east of 35 here, we have the Blacklands Prairie, which is essentially black clay and there's no watering anything there. If you're putting it in the ground, it just stops and it doesn't move. That could be a real challenge. That does get compacted. I wonder how much that would play into not only getting water down there, but if you're trying to get the nutrients down to the plants, I don't know if that would actually move Down in there. I get this question a lot. Have you ever gotten the where are these bugs coming from? How do they find my vegetables?
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: (laughs) What do you tell people? (laughs) I'm curious because I get that question all the time.
0: In the outdoors.
1: (laughs) Yes. You planted their food (laughs) where they
2: live and they were smart enough to smell it.
0: I mean, so sometimes it could be, you know, it depends on where they're overwintering. So if they are overwintering in the soil, they could be emerging from there and boom, that crop is right there. And, and so that's we're time about crop rotation. At least you're making it a little bit less convenient, especially if you're switching complete plant families or whatever, so that it's not a, a similar plant host. Then you also have a lot of these insects in their adult life stages have some kind of dispersal mechanism such as winged flight. And they usually have some ability to detect odors in the air They're using their antennae. If they didn't overwinter in your particular garden, they could have been overwintering in a neighbor's garden. And this is where even deviating a little bit and talking about mosquitoes, you know, my wife is like, can we kill the mosquitoes in our backyard? I'm like, well, Yes but our neighbors all have mosquitoes and they can just fly right over. So unless you can create like a protective super super supernova barrier that they can't penetrate. You You need a
1: force field. Yeah,
0: exactly, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like they can just keep coming on in. And so uh, the same thing with the insects in your garden, they could be coming from neighboring plots or neighboring gardens. But even if you do manage them effectively, they could be coming back in again from those neighboring gardens or yards. And so that's why it's kind of, helpful or I think important to encourage a predator or beneficial insect population. So at least you can have some sustained residual control in your garden over time so they can help suppress pests that immigrate into your garden.
1: So Irfan, do you advocate for buying? Because I know a lot of people ask me if they should buy things like ladybugs or whatever to release in their yards. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of of the mind where it's encouraged the stuff to become there naturally and be able to survive in that ecosystem on their own, not necessarily buying something to put there that doesn't want to be there normally.
0: Some of the commercially available beneficial predators that are usually available for a consumer market are uh, some species of lady beetles. And there are some green lacewings as well, which in their adult forms are winged and have very good dispersal ability. So you could either buy them and release them, or you could get your money and just throw it out in the wind because uh, <laughs> you <laughs> might get similar pest suppression. And to my knowledge, there's no documented examples of where releasing lady beetles outdoors can work in a home garden. There are some um, exquisite examples of how lady beetles have worked in what we call classical or importation biological controls. That's like there's some invasive insect that's come from some other country and it doesn't have any predators here. But you go back to the original country and find its predator and bring it in. And it has saved industries in the, in the U S but in terms of um, buying large quantities of lady beetles and hoping that they'll kill all the insects in your backyard, to my knowledge, there is no good data, any replicated data. And there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that it does not work, but no replicated data saying that it does work in especially small plot gardens.
1: I always tell people they're controlling aphids somewhere, but it may not be your yard. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Mike Merchant, did a, he did a, a capture mark release and recapture study on ladybugs where he oh, really I don't know actually I don't know that they collected them. I think they just purchased a bunch of ladybugs, uh-huh. marked them with a fluorescent paint, dye. nice released them and then re and then did recapture or just looked for them, tried to collect them again. And it was like uh, Wizzy, you might have heard him talk about it, but I want to say he said it was something like 12% or less than that of what they recaptured were actually the ones they had released. Wow.
1: Were they recapturing it in the same exact area or were they, did they broaden the scope? See, I need to go look for that research because I've never heard Mike say anything about that. That's...
2: I, I heard him tell the story one time um, and I don't know how broad they recaptured it. And he did it, I want to say with Mark Maggie or with, um, he did it with somebody else or maybe it was a master gardener project up in Dallas, but I bet he's got it written up somewhere. But I always remember that as a, you can release them, but you're they're going to go to your neighbor's house. They're probably not going to stick around. at <laughs> your house
0: sorry, there are some predators that that one can purchase that are not winged. So there are like predatory mites, for example, that might help suppress like two spotted spider mites or might help feed on thrips eggs. But in a home garden, I don't think it's economically viable. Uh, it's very expensive. Just the shipping alone is going to be about the same price as the beneficial because they need to overnight it essentially to you because they're living organisms. So going back to what you said, Wizzy, about you know, encouraging predators and beneficial insects in your backyard, because that's going to be uh, much more sustainable in in a home garden type setting.
1: So as far as controlling the insects that are in your vegetable garden, when you get them, Molly, you say you take pictures, so you probably don't do a whole lot, I would guess.
2: Well, I collect a bunch of them. It just depends on what I'm feeling, you know. I guess it was Sam Cotner, a famous horticulturist with AM, always said that the gardener's best friend is their shadow, and your knees should always be dirty because you're always out there monitoring from the time you have the two little seed or transplant. But when you first start getting little leaves, you're watching it to check to see when the squash you've got squash bugs laying eggs or whatever, you know. You're planting, you're you're watching to catch them when you have eggs or the little babies, the nymphs of anything. And that way you can control the ones that are doing most of the feeding before they become adults and then replenish the population. So I use my fingers a lot. I use um, sharp blasts of water if my plant can tolerate it. When I water my plant, I usually water my leaves too, just to wash things off. But I think the best thing a gardener can do is just monitor, monitor and, and look under the leaves and see what's there.
1: I think that that's kind of the downfall of most people. They go out and they look, but they're looking to see what fruits and vegetables they have, not necessarily what is causing problems. And for a lot of these insect pests, they're so small and in hidden locations that it can cause issues if you're waiting to actually see damage on the plant. That's triage there that you're not trying to prevent anything from happening. You're just putting a Band-Aid on something that's already gushing blood. Right. (laughs) It can be an issue. Do you ever use anything like a row cover where you would cover your plants up and keep the bugs from getting it's kind of like an exclusion technique you're creating a little private area for your plants to grow
2: well it depends on the plant and we do this a lot in our field trials that we do that I do with our horticulturist. we'll do row covers for a little while for strawberries when we plant strawberries but also like a reflective mulch and it's not really a mulch it's just like a re- it's like a plastic and then you cut little holes and the plant is growing through the little tiny hole it's shiny yes and, and a lot of insects don't like it using mulch. Mulch, I think some insects like to burrow. So if you use mulch, that is harder for them. Like the cucumber beetles can't crawl down in there and overwinter. But then on the flip side, like squash bugs, you want to move the mulch away so they don't have a hiding place during the day. And then one thing we'll also do is like a horizontal trellis for squash and other viney type plants, melons. So we've, we've raised it off the ground just a few inches, but it's not sitting on the ground where it's easier for the insects to come after it
1: with squash and melons and things like that. I try to go up. I put in like a vertical trellis and try to train it to go up that. That way I don't have to worry about the squash bugs that hide under the leaves under the ground. Have you ever done cardboard traps for the squash bugs where you stick out the cardboard at night and then you go out and pick it up in the morning because they'll go under there and hide. And then you pick it up and it's like, oh my God, there's all these bugs.
2: (laughs) No, but I'll have to. I know people do it for roly polies.
1: Yeah, you could do it for those or snails and slugs. That's the other huge one because they all like to hide under. Under there. I use a vacuum to get stink bugs and stuff off of my tomatoes, and it's usually a crappier model that doesn't have so much suction. <laughs> handheld mm-hmm. and cordless. Other than
2: using a little like dustbuster or the, you can buy the little bug sucker things, right? Um, I have another trick for the leaf-footed bug on tomatoes. Tomatoes just start coming out and they're green. That's when you see the little red babies all over, clustered all over the, the tomatoes. Take a pan, a little sh- you know shallow pan and put some rubbing alcohol in it, or just a cup with rubbing alcohol and flick the tomato. They fall into the alcohol or give the plant a really good jerk and they kind of play possum. And so you'd kill 30 or more bugs without actually using any pesticides, unless you call the, at least not any pesticides on the plant, not right? The You're plant. still using alcohol, which kills it, which is a pesticide.
0: If all the alcohol is suitable for St. Patrick's Day, which is the day in which we're recording this episode, <laughs> obviously they then feel sorry for themselves and they never come out of there. And then that's the, the end of the damage <laughs> in which they to your plants.
1: Well, is there anything else that you guys do? Anything exciting that I'm forgetting about? probably the only other thing that I would say is know when your plants are done growing and pull them at that point in time, because once plants are past their prime, then insects come in and attack
2: that and Know when it's time to plant your plants and plant them the proper distance apart. Because if you cram them all together, which we all do as homeowners, because we have limited space and we think, oh, well, if you were going to die and they'll spread out, but when you cram them all together, you get humidity and you usually will get more aphid issues and just other insects that like that kind of environment, cultural control, plant them the right distance apart, water them when you're supposed to, fertilize when you're supposed to, and know when it's time to plant them. And also if some insects are going after these young little transplants, cull them, pull them up and start all over with an older plant that you got from the nursery to hopefully outgrow the damage that the insects are going to be doing. But I agree with you. If your tomato plant gave you 40 tomatoes, that's pretty darn good. If, if it's dying, let it die. Get it out of its misery. If it's covered in bugs, it's telling you something and no amount of pesticide Screaming, that you can douse it with is going to fix it. it. Is. People are funny. We think we can get unlimited amounts, but They have a lifespan; they don't live forever. Kind of,
0: I kind of subscribe to that idea of letting it die if 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 it's not doing well. If I see like a a population of insects starting to grow on a plant, I usually don't panic right away. Because for me, you know, and and us a lot of us that are doing you know backyard gardening, it's not our livelihood, right? I mean, it's kind of a a fun hobby. Yeah. And so, you know, if if a plant or two die, it's it's okay, and I prefer that over you know there's a number of insecticides in my arsenal that I could use to really punch down those those pests but you know there's no telling what non target impacts that might have those pests are going to be good food for some predators you know that I'd rather kind of stick around so I almost prefer to see that ecosystem because it's kind of, it's a little bit more natural when you have herbivores feeding on your plant. That's, that's nature, right? It's not nature when there are none on there. That's not about, there's nothing natural about that. So like, I kind of like to, you know, see where where that population is going, but if it is something that I really want to maintain, then yeah, I might do some kind of a insecticidal soap, something uh, light that's going to have very low residual if it's a larger insect like leaf-footed bugs or stink bugs, I'll do a similar technique like what what y'all described, whether it be vacuuming or hand picking off and putting in a soapy bucket or something like that. So I'm a big fan of the mechanical control, uh, very low residual, softer insecticides, or just letting it be and kind of see what predators are, or parasitic wasps kind of come in.
1: That's the fun thing: watching the whole ecosystem and life cycles and doing that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't want to sacrifice their vegetables, but Right. That does want me to say if you are using pesticides to control your insects on your plants, please make sure that you check the label that it's okay to utilize them in those locations and that you read and follow all the labeled instructions.
0: Absolutely.
2: Especially when you can harvest. Don't don't spray it if and then eat it the next day if it says your harvest interval is 2 weeks later. Right.
0: Or if it's not even labeled for fruits and vegetables. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah. And even do it if it's soapy water or something that you think is really, really benign. You still want to read the label.
1: So in this episode, we talked about strategies to prepare your vegetable garden so that you can avoid or reduce pest populations. We also talked a bit about things you can do if you already have pest population established in the garden. We hope that you picked up some information that you can apply in your own vegetable garden. Next time, we'll be talking with our special guest, Dr. Becky Bowling, about turf pests. We hope that you'll tune in. Thanks for listening to Bugs by the Yard from Texas A&M AgriLife Extension and the Department of Entomology.